welcome to the Imposter Syndrome Club. My name is Jessamy G, flying solo today without Miss Alice Edie because unfortunately she is unwell or potentially avoiding the topic of this chat that we are going to have today <laughs> with our amazing and gorgeous guest, Jazz from Jazz Designs, aka your pricing queen. Welcome, Jazz. Thank you so much for having me. This is um this is a moment. This is a milestone that I'm just gonna pop up on the shelf amongst all of the other knickknacks and just be like, yep. I did that. I'm finally here in the pink pod that is the Imposter Podcast. Yeah. <sighs> yep. You're you're on the inside. Mm. Now you've seen all of the like mess that exists outside of the part of, <laughs> that you can see on video, but we don't need to know that. You also match our studio very beautifully, I must say. Thank you. All the teals going. Yeah. Look, when I was, you know, back 15 years ago picking my favourite colour, I thought what colour would they have in this, uh, in this lounge room set up? that's what I'll go with just so I'm ready. Finally, finally it's paying off. Yeah, look, what do I do now? (laughs) Do I have to completely change my colour after this? (laughs) No, but what you do have to do is read your own bio for us, Jasmine. So as you know, that's the way that this podcast starts in all our interview episodes. Rather brutal um, way of starting, but all of our guests do it. So would you indulge us, please? Absolutely. Well, the funny thing is when it came to organising this, uh, I was kind of like, okay, I've got like quite a few different ones. Mm-hmm. And I think that as creatives, we have different, a bit of a chameleon approach to who do I need to be to be in front of this person. But yeah. if I was to um, type into my phone and I love a good keyboard shortcut, if you aren't doing text replacement keyboard shortcuts on your phone, prepare to have your mind blown. If I was to type in the words, hi there, I'm Jazz, no spaces, it auto generates to this. Hi there, Q Spill. I'm Jazz, your pricing queen and design superwoman. Teal clad, total foodie, and super passionate about pricing for creatives. In my opinion, a creative is anyone who solves a problem in a non-traditional way, and that skill right there is the ability to create something that didn't exist yesterday, and it's more valuable than many realize. My love of teaching pricing was born out of necessity. Often having confused creatives slide into my DMs, wanting to know how to price with confidence, clarity, and of course, condiments. For the past few years, I've been fortunate enough to teach through my online courses, via my online community, my email list, my resources, and everything else I provide on my website. Almost every creative I have ever met is already discounting their worth before they've even served their genius, and I'm passionate about changing that recipe for success. So come find me at Your Pricing Queen on Instagram or come join the Creative Business Kitchen. Fuck yeah. Yeah. Now, that felt very comfortable to you to read. Am I wrong? No, you are not wrong. Yeah. You didn't feel like that. I didn't sense an iota of ick there. And I think, you know, you have a very strong um, brand. And when I say, I, I, yeah. it's, a, it's you, right? So I think there's weird like ick that goes around that word for some reason. Mm. But I think it's so helpful. Like once you have that framing, so for you, it's, it's food, it's food puns, that metaphor can just be the scaffolding that you build everything around, right? Yeah, it, it's almost like I rely on my scaffolding to keep me authentic. It keeps mm. me honest. It keeps me passionate. It keeps me interesting, to be honest, because yeah. the fact of the matter is if I was to take away my business, if I was to take away the fact that I'm a graphic designer, that I help other freelancers, that I do what I do, I would be the most beige person ever, because I spend almost every waking moment thinking about 
how can I be creative? How can I make profit? How can I show others how to do it? That's, Mm. it's incredible passion for me. Hell, the only times that I am not that person is when I'm sitting covered in blankets, teal blankets, mind you, in an Audi with my dog playing Pikmin. Like that's the only times that I am not, or, or cooking, but then still there's food in that as well. So that's the only times that I am not thinking about that side of who my personality is. It's the scaffolding that makes keep, that keeps me authentic with me. Yeah. So I'm super interested in a little bit of your story. Yeah. So you're a graphic designer by trade. Mm-hmm. You are now our pricing queen. <laughs> and the work that you do, I was just having a look at your website before you came over today. And it's just, you, if you haven't had a look, go go and have a look. We'll put all relevant links in the show notes because there is so much fucking awesome stuff for free. It's available there to have a look. But um, you obviously, you're you're prolific in creating content and, and this sort of um, business advice and pricing advice for creatives. And you say that that was born out of a need of your own necessity. Mm. But so can you Talk a little bit to that sort of transition or that step from your own design business to this passion for pricing and helping other people do it. Yeah, absolutely. I feel like, yeah, it definitely was out of necessity. It started with friends or co-workers. And when I say co-workers, we're all one big business as freelancers. So co-workers means that, you know, my mate Jimbo in Barcelona slid into my DMs and was like, I have no idea how to price this. Can you help me? and stepped through the process. And I only needed to be one or two steps ahead of where his information gap was to be able to help him and bring him forward. It was very important to me to be able to, if I didn't know something, go and find the information for it so I could help them. So I could, Mm. because it didn't matter if that information existed out there for them to get, they were asking me. So that was my responsibility to try and find that, that gap and find the knowledge that filled the gap. It's It's really quite funny that so many have said, oh, well, you know, aren't you training your competition or aren't you making it so that you're having less work potential? But it's never been that for me. It's never been a case of like, oh, if I help them price themselves and that, and we were put up together against each other, we we wouldn't actually be serving the same thing. So to me, it's really important that that's, this is my legacy. This is what I give back. This is what I create. I'm not creating life in the form of children. So instead I'll create profit in the form of freelancers. Yeah. Oh my God. I love that. Uh, I'm a very big believer in the philosophy of a rising tide lifts all boats. Absolutely. And it is just like, it's actually true on a practical level too. Like it feels nice on a philosophical level, but it's actually correct. Yeah. <laughs> like it, it works. The funny thing Everyone about benefits. cliches, cliches are generally there because they work. They are a cliche because they have proven the standard or lasted the test of time of like, yeah, that still is true. Yeah, that's right. I um, You'll love this, Jazz, actually. I gave a, um, a keynote a few years ago at VizConf, which was the um, graphic recording, graphic facilitation based um, conference, the first one that we had in 20 something pre-pandemic. So who knows? Time time doesn't have a continuum post 2019 till now. (laughs) It's just like a, can we get all of that time back just to do stuff again? Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Can we get those years of our life back that somehow seem to be in a vortex? But anyway, I digress, Mm. but um, gave a talk on exactly this subject of a rising tide lifts all boats and that we don't have to fight for the same piece of the pie 
we can just make more pies. Oh, absolutely. And I think that's what's so beautiful about the work that you do and the spirit in which it's done is that it's not, that is not going to hurt, that's only going to help mm. feed our tummies. I See, this is what I really love. The reason why I teach through food is because it's infectious. Mm. It makes it so that other people start thinking about things in food and then they try and get in on the joke and they succeed. And it's just like, okay, cool. We're speaking the same language because you've kind of adopted the language that I have. And I think that's the other part about the whole um, a rising tide rises all ships is that if we start all talking in the ways that help us grow as freelancers, as business owners, and start sharing these conversations that make you realize that, oh, freelancer doesn't mean famine. Yeah. Freelancer doesn't mean that you're giving up the capabilities that employed people have. It's just in a different package and it requires different things. Where do you think that comes from, this sort of like ideal of like the starving artist that it's almost valuable to lean into that trope and it's and there's almost something like icky or gross about wanting to be able to pay your fucking mortgage or even beyond that, to aspire to make good money, to mm. be successful, to buy a fucking yacht. I don't know, like that's all perfectly fine but there's something that when you put that lens on creative industries, and it's not only creative industries, by the way, I think it's also things like, you know, if you're a childcare professional or things that you're meant to, there is a an external understanding that you're meant to love it so much that you do it for free. Where do you think these tropes come from and how can we kill them? <laughs> <laughs> Death to all tropes. Excellent. I like that. Mm. I think it actually comes from the mentality that you should hate work. Oh yeah, that you should ha- that work is a necessary evil, that it's a bad thing, and the moment that you enjoy it, discount code applied. Mm. It's so frustrating and it's so infuriating because it makes it, it then creates shame around the people who do love what they do, Yeah, that do something because there's a, a larger reason or a higher power or whatever they're called to, to do what they're doing, if they love what they do, they should do it because they love it. No, you should do it partially because you, you, you should, you should do it because it makes you money, but you should keep going because it, you love it. Yeah. That's so, so interesting. So my husband, Dan, who you've met, um, is a, a video editor and filmmaker and he recently left his job. He, for the first time in a long time, had a, a nine to five full-time job for the last year and learned that that is not the life for him mm-hmm. as it's not the <laughs> life for me either. Um, but, but gave, gave it a go. Um, and, but it's now in this sort of interesting position and he, absolutely has a very ingrained sense of, yes, work work should be hard. You shouldn't enjoy it. And he has noticed in himself, as soon as he starts to enjoy something, he feels guilty Mm -hmm. and feels like someone, and this is by the, like, he's doing the thing, exactly what he's meant to be doing. And there's no police. There's no work police around being like, hold up, son. You look like you're having too much fun. And it's Do awesome. you know how much you were enjoying yourself? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and it's it's awesome that he can recognise that. Mm. But, but what an interesting and so sad that that is so incredibly common that you think, oh, no, 
someone's going to find me out and I'm going to get in trouble for not quote unquote working hard enough because mm. I'm enjoying it. Mm. Absolutely. It's, it's, I would even say mildly infuriating. It's like hot and spicy infuriating. Like yeah. it makes me so frustrated because, yeah. you know, there's, there's nothing wrong. If anything, it's actually incredibly right to love what you do. And it doesn't matter if that's creating a painting or creating a bomb ass spreadsheet. Like if you love yeah. what you do, that's actually a really great thing. We shouldn't be sitting there going, oh no, I'm, I, sh- I should like this less. Jesus, what a terrible way to live if you're trying to diminish your joy from the thing that is literally taking up a majority of your time and your life. If we're to go by the whole idea of like eight hours of work, eight hours of sleep and eight hours of play, one, let's be honest here that the eight hours of sleep is great to get. (laughs) (laughs) I think of it as a serving suggestion personally. Yeah, Yeah. absolutely. (laughs) Serves a family of four. I am the family of four. (laughs) Um, But then that eight hours of work, like that's a third of your life that you're spending working. And if you're doing it so that you can capture that extra eight hours of joy outside of work, you're going to feel like you're shortchanged. You're going to feel like you're in that living to work instead of working to live process. Mm. And I don't think that it's either either. I think it's creating and cultivating a space in between where we enjoy what we do and then we get to enjoy outside of that as well. And if that outside is so much less than the work, but I'm still enjoying it, I'm going to feel fulfilled. Yeah. I think this is, um, I I kind of reject the framing of work-life balance on a personal level, just because to me, they're quite inextricably linked Mm. in a way that I enjoy. So for me, I don't think that that's detrimental. It's Mm. more of a like work-life integration yeah. for me. But it's very personal and that is something that you have to work out each as an individual where your comforts lie with that. Mm. For me it feels good to try and separate them isn't fun for me. Um, but speaking of, you know, um, tropes and cliches, some of which are useful and some of which aren't, you know, there's the old saying of find a job that you like and you work a job that you love and you won't work a day in your life or whatever that is. Mm-hmm. I feel like that's also very unuseful in the other direction <laughs> mm-hmm. because it's like, yes, it's great to love what we do, but also some of it is fucking boring. Yeah. Like some of it is work. And I think it's just with those two sort of competing narratives that work should be hard and you shouldn't have fun or you should love what you do and if you find the thing that you love, you won't work a day in your life. Like neither of those things are true. Yeah. (laughs) But they're kind of the options that we're given. Yeah. And it's, there's so many more options. (laughs) Like it's like being told chicken or fish when you know they've got lobster out the back. Like, come on. Give me them claws. (laughs) (laughs) Well, just an oyster, just a platter of oysters, self to myself, that'd be great. Thank you. But I really do believe that when we say in that whole work-life balance, we get rid of every other thing that needs to be balanced Mm. in our lives. Family time. If we have to like shove family time into the lifetime, then we're actually not balancing ourselves as well. Mm. And then the work side of things, well, there's allowed to be joy in work. Sometimes work is more on some days and less on others and letting it be less. 
sometimes letting it be less because it's like, oh, I've finished this and I don't really need to start something until later. Letting go of the idea that future you is going to be pissed off that you didn't use that time efficiently and now they're suffering. Letting things be not easy but simple Mm. and giving space for that as well. I think it's really, really important. So the more that we try and think of a work-life balance as a seesaw, we realize that we have to load up both of those with so much more than just work or just life. Yeah. Balancing joy, balancing uh, a family life, balancing all the different other emotions that come up with being a human. Exactly. And to to your point about the eight hours, eight hours, I think part of the, and this might be semantics, but part of the thing that I find really problematic about that framing is that it's suggesting that those eight hours a day you're at work are not your life. You're still living. You you know what I mean? (laughs) That, that, That should be like a thing. It's like severance, you know, that you should be able to walk out of that and close the door on it. And that's not part of your life seems incredibly sad to me. Yeah. To me, it's kind of then going, you must switch off. Yes. I, I don't, I spent way too much time holding on white knuckle grip to the shame that I don't like to switch off. Yeah. I, I think it was um, a couple of, or maybe even just in this past year that I was actually finally able to allow myself to sit in the fact that I don't like to switch off because when I switch off, I am uncomfortable. I'm Mm. not creating in any way, shape or form, which is the thing that brings me joy. Yeah. Which is the thing that makes me feel alive, which is the thing that makes me feel like I am working towards the next version of me that I get to discover what their version of success is. And if I'm sitting there going, I hate this, but it's supposed to be the thing that I've been switching off and working towards, then it's just going to feel empty. And it's only mm. in this last year that I've actually been able to feel confident and comfortable around that. But then the the societal pressures come in. Mm. And, you know, you you have a friend, a well-meaning friend, a friend that you definitely appreciate their concern but do not share their opinion of going, but are you taking time off? Yeah. And, yeah, I might be, but your time off and my time off look completely different. There's um, a great, I guess, a video or an article. It's been a little while since I watched called The Seven Types of Rest. Yep. And and covering things exactly like this, like my rest is not going to look the same as your rest. And I think even, you know, the difference between Dan and I, like I am very good at doing nothing. (laughs) Like I can sit on the couch with the dogs and just watch like hours of reality TV. I can do that. I mean, I have a limit to how much I can do, but, but as in like the, he he will get very fidgety, like, like just sitting still. Yeah. The, the addition of the dogs has been good for me because now I can reframe it as spending quality time with my dog daughters <laughs> rather than just being a lazy bitch. Um, but, but that is not, if he tried to do that, that is not restful for him. Mm-hmm. So he is, yeah, when he's creating, he's making music, like you, I guess there has to be the right sort of framing around it so you're not doing it for a deadline, you're doing it for the amount of time that you enjoy it and when you stop enjoying it, you stop doing it. But there is no correct way to rest and Mm. recharge and depending on all sorts of things like your proclivity to be introverted or extroverted or 
any of that sort of stuff, what what feeds you energetically could very well be the thing that drains someone else. But there's no, we don't know how other people work, so we just have to trust them that they do. <laughs> mm, I think I found my way that I recharge on a family holiday to Fiji, um, we're going back about four or five years ago, and I found it in the weirdest way. So for the longest time I'd been like, mm, I want to get an iPad, but like I don't know whether I'll use it enough. Mm-hmm. I, I feel like you and I will just sit there and like giggle at that because it's a very recognisable thing from where we are now, mm. um, both illustrating quite constantly. But I, I bought it and I went on this family holiday and I got about two days in and it was with all my now husband's family and they're not necessarily loud and they're not necessarily over the top, but it's a lot of spending time together. It's a lot of sharing. It's a lot of playing with the kids and and that quality family time that some people get their energy from, that social interaction that fills their cup. And there was one day where I think Ro had gone down to go and spend time with them in their um, room villa that they were in. And I said, actually, I think I just need just some time. I'm, I'm working on this piece. I'm really liking it. I'm just going to give myself some time. And I two hours later, skipped down those stairs with more pep in my step than I had had in so long. And it's that moment that it clicks for you of just like, oh, this is how I get my energy. This is how I get to, to explore that. And I then, being the multi-passionate ADHD sparkly brained gal that I am, then went, okay, how can I make this in my business? Not because I wanted to make money from it, because I wanted to include it in my eight hours of working joy. Mm. And this is why I think, you know, when people are like, oh, everyone who's multi-passionate or every creative tries to make a business out of whatever they're creating, well, why is that such a bad thing? I think that's really, it's because I'm definitely inclined that way for a lot of things too. It's like, well, if I'm doing, if I'm doing the thing, I want to go all in. Absolutely. You know, but I think that sometimes that is very beneficial for me and sometimes it's detrimental because for me personally, I do need to have some things that it's like you don't have to like now be a professional burlesque dancer or fucking whatever. Like you can just do that <laughs> for for fun. You don't have to like follow, like even just recently. So I, I ran a marathon recently, not to, not to brag. And the hair tosses um, begin. Mm-hmm. Any opportunity to bring it up, I will. Um, but so I, did you say that you ran a marathon? Yes, oh, yes, yes, yes. Have, oh. have you heard? Oh, yeah. no. I've run a few actually. But, um, <laughs> but the thing is this time around, previously when I've done it, I've really enjoyed the process. I found the process of training I mean, when I say enjoyed, like obviously you have runs where you're like, why the fuck am I doing this? Mm-hmm. But, you know, the feeling of having a goal, working towards the goal, you know, achieving it feels good. This time around, it didn't. For whatever reason, I had other stuff going. It just felt like a grind the whole time. I still got there. I still did it. But it's like, like actually why? Mm. Then recently I found myself going, oh, I should get. So this is, that was at the end of May. And I haven't really run since because <laughs> horrified you quit. myself. Hot, cold turkey, hard. Well, that has happened 
following the previous marathons I've done too, I've just like not run for like a year. You just give up walking. You're just like, you know what? I will be carried (laughs) everywhere. (laughs) Dan, piggyback. I mean, you're not entirely wrong. But I I noticed myself going, oh, I kind of feel like picking up running again. Um, But straight away I went to, oh, the Melbourne Marathon's in October. I should book in for that and try for that. It's like, no, bitch, you can just go for a run. Like you don't have to do the whole thing. And I think it's really interesting, those tensions between things. So that that characteristic is actually something I quite like about myself and I think that's has brought me success in a lot of ways. I think it has also been a detriment mm-hmm. in other ways. So yeah. it's trying to like figure out where your superpowers are and wield them in a way that is helpful, yeah. <laughs> which is hard. And I feel like that's a lifelong journey. Like I don't think there's a simple answer to that. But Yeah, yeah, you could be 78 and be like, I should sign up for another marathon. <laughs> I definitely should. It's definitely what I want to do. But I think it's about reframing what that fulfills within you. Yes. Um, yeah. I mean, there's a reason why I have a box that says Jasmine's cross-stitch phase in my in my <laughs> garage yeah. because for a time I got really obsessed with it because it kept my hands moving and doing things and it didn't go towards my business and I was still in that kind of shame phase of I shouldn't be drawing on the couch watching TV if it's for work. That's me time, you know, what am I doing? And so I had to go into something and use a, a different tool that I wasn't going to be able to make money from. Mm. And then I overcommitted and then I, I I literally was just like, I'm going to do this massive one that's going to be like one of my illustrations but made as a cross-stitch. I like planned it out and everything, paid for the subscription on the app um, to like plan out the pattern, got all of it and went, nah, it's too big now and I don't really, it's 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 lost its shine, it's lost its sparkle. It yeah, hasn't got the thing anymore. Thing. And I think that, it was in that that I was kind of like, ah, oh, maybe I like making money. Mm. Maybe I like the the pursuit or the joy or the little bit of a chase or the little bit of a idea that I can create something that didn't exist yesterday that helps someone tomorrow but makes me money today. Like it, it's not shameful for, to want to do that no. and get comfortable with that. So, you know, I don't necessarily have many hobbies outside of my work. I have like sports. Last night we uh, we won netball. Uh, yeah. It was great. Yeah, it was a blowout, like 14 to 34. And they put me in keeper. Yeah. Now I am not keeper height. Um, but then I also like dance on the weekends and do Zumba. I was in a run club. Um, shout out to Full of Beans Run Club. I will come back. I promise <laughs> once it gets warmer, I will come back. I promise. But, you know, if finding the extracurriculars that are fulfilling a different side of me. They're helping my health and they're helping my mental health as well because it's really, that that's more important to me. And then just sitting in the joy that is creating things for my business, that I'm creating something that's helping other people make money as well, is it's just finding that sweet spot for myself. Mm. You, You touched on something that I relate to a lot and which has been quite a journey for me as a business owner in that when I first started as a freelance graphic recorder and illustrator, there was not one part of me that ever thought I would get excited by the business side of things. So that was like the the bit that you had to do Mm -hmm. so you could draw the pictures. Perfectly fine. What 
really came as a surprise. So I'm now 13 years in running my business. And at some point in there, not only did I start to not hate it, I started to enjoy it. Yep. It started to creatively inspire me. Mm-hmm. Uh, when the pandemic first hit, I had never, I mean, obviously I was also incredibly fucking freaked out because a lot of my work is live and at workshops. Simultaneously, I had never felt more creatively inspired probably in my life because it was this whole new set of problems that we'd never faced before. And I was lit up from the inside on the phone to my clients working, like, how do we do this virtually? What does this look like? What tools do we need? I was so inspired from the business model side of things. And I can see this in your work too, right? And if you look at my uh, Thinking Colour is my company, if you look at the website, I also use colour as the scaffolding through all of of my stuff. So lots of colour puns, Mm. uh, all of that sort of thing. And that is to me now where I get my creative juice from is from that side of things. Now that doesn't necessarily mean that will happen for every freelancer or business owner. You might find that you get someone else to do that side for you that turn, you know, for someone that turns them on. But it was a very interesting journey. And when I felt that shift, it was very uncomfortable. Mm-hmm. Very, very uncomfortable because I thought, well, what does this mean? Am I not a real creative anymore? Am I not a real artist if that's not the thing that's turning me on about this job anymore? And it was a real identity shift that yeah. was that was hard, honestly. Yeah, it definitely is a, a shift that is necessary, really. I, I remember sitting there going, you know, they didn't really teach us that it's only about 30% of the time you design in your own design business. And mm. I used to like rage on it and be like, oh, why didn't they prepare me for it? They didn't prepare you for it because traditional uh, education is trying to make it so that you're employable not so you're a business owner. That's why you would go and get a business degree or you would learn about business in a different way. And I feel like we're, there's so many more of us that are, are freelancers and solopreneurs now that um, it, it probably should be something that is largely taught or largely um, developed because taking that mindset into it, it makes you feel like you're missing out on being a designer by having to be a business. But yeah. one of my... Favorite um, educators, uh, Blair Enns, says that uh, the work that you do, sometimes the way you price it can be as creative as the work itself. Mm. And like you can sit there and get really creative. And when you get really creative with how you price a job, that is that is finding joy because you're creating a, a space where you don't need to discount. You yeah. don't need to swap that time in a way that leaves you hungry, that leaves you out of pocket, that makes it so that you're actually working with the client within their budget, but it's more of an investment because you're either working with them long-term or you're getting creative with the way that you serve that price. And that's what I started to love about business. And, you know, I'm a creative problem solver. I like to find the ways that things work and how they can work either better, differently, or in a different space for someone else because not everything's going to work for everyone, but you will find out what doesn't faster by doing than thinking about it. Yeah. So 
Let's talk about the money, honey. Let's mm-hmm. let's get into it on pricing. And again, this has also been a huge journey for me over my career. I think, you know, one of the, this is going to sound quite dumb and obvious, but when you've only, like I've had very few real jobs in my <laughs> life. So money feels very personal. So it, because for me as a, as a freelancer, it was, when I'm talking about money, it is my, it's mine. Like it's my, mm-hmm. so to, to reframe it, to think, to ask someone for money, that the feeling of it to me was like, I'm asking for this money out of this person's pocket. That was a real like game changer shift for me because I mean, obviously I didn't really believe that, but that was the, the overwhelming the feel. feeling. And the, with more practice realizing like, oh, it's just like, it's numbers on a page. They have a budget we work within that or work what's in or out of that budget, they're not going to be upset with you for, for, for quoting an appropriate amount. But I feel like that's how I felt for a really long time mm-hmm. was that, oh, no, this is like this is rude or this is uh, too much and worry about how they would feel because money was a very emotionally driven thing for me, but it's not most of the time for other people. So roundabout way to, to start the question about money. But um, you talk about charging with confidence. Yeah. How do people build that? And no, I'll leave that. I'll, I'll come back to my second question. <laughs> How do we do that? Well, at time of recording, I'm literally doing a charging with confidence masterclass this weekend, um, which if you're listening in the future, you can grab the replay. Yeah. Um, DM me, babes. So there's, there's actually so much in what we've just, what you've just said. So when you said I'm asking clients for money, I wrote that in big black letters across my mind and scratched out the word ask because mm. you're not asking. Mm. You are letting them know the ticketed price to access your genius. Mm. You are letting them know the entry fee to get in to be able to access the incredible skills that you have. We're not asking. We're letting them know. Mm. And a lot of the time so it, confidence comes from mind shifts and from information cultivation. So the mind shifts that you would probably need to do sooner rather than later are understanding you're not asking, yeah. understanding you're not taking, understanding that it's not your money that you're charging so you wouldn't be paying you, your rates anyway because you can do what you do. Mm. And you're not taking it out of their back pocket. You're yeah. You're fulfilling a need that they have an allocated amount of money or you're solving a problem that is costing them an allocated amount of money and fixing that problem. Yeah. You're not taking from them. You're actually giving to them. You are fulfilling that. It's something that they haven't been able to do themselves. Otherwise, they do it themselves. Yeah. And then when it comes to the cultivation of, of, of confidence in information gathering, a lot of the time when I found myself feeling unconfident in the situations where I needed to either quote a client, charge a client, um, get more information for to be able to do my job, 
sitting there frustrated and like, I can't solve this. I can't work this out. I can't work out why it's not working. You start asking yourself, you have to start asking yourself questions of, have I asked enough questions of the client? Mm. Am I trying to solve a problem that's actually theirs to solve? Am I trying to actually answer a question that they need to be answering? Or have I found myself in a situation where they've put the responsibility or the decision-making in my court when the results of it aren't going to be felt by me? Mm. They're actually going to be felt by the client. So, you know, we as creative professionals know what colours, what fonts, what layouts work best in our own professional opinion. But if we're having to try and come up with, say, for instance, a copy headline that encapsulates their product and what it does without enough information to know what it does, without enough information to know how it's being sold or where it's going or what it's doing, and we make a decision and it's wrong, that's not our fault, but it is our responsibility. Mm. Understanding that fault and responsibility are completely different things and you can and should, as the creative professional in the room, make sure that you hold them responsible to give you what you need and then take that responsibility of yourself to use that in the right way so that you can solve the problem. This is the reason why we so often feel like, oh, the client didn't like my logo or the client didn't like what I created. Well, you might not have asked enough questions. Say, for instance, this flyer that I'm creating for you, is there other pieces of collateral that will be seen in the same space? Or is there other existing design elements that I need to adhere to, to be able to make sure that this is a cohesive design? Understand that those, those information pieces and nuggets are hidden in their brain because they don't know what you need to be able to do your best work. Mm. You do. So just ask for it. Mm. This is very, very excellent advice. <laughs> and I think it's that that briefing process is so key and something that you definitely get better at over time. And just thinking about it now, some of my longest, most loving, successful ongoing client relationships, I love all my clients, by the by. Mm. <laughs> um, I've gotten rid of the shit ones. I've absolutely yeah. had ones that have like tried to jump on the train because they see the genius, because they see the ability, because they see the value. And then they do things that are red flags and I go, off you go. Yeah. I don't need that. I don't need that. It's And that is you get better at recognising them over time, don't yep. you? But I think, yeah, so some of these, the most yeah lovely, long, ongoing relationships with clients have actually been clients that I've talked myself out of work to begin with because in that briefing process identified that actually, no, I'm not the right person for this job mm -hmm. because I don't want to do a job that I'm going to be shit at. They don't want that in the end product. Like that's not fun for anyone. Mm -hmm. I don't enjoy it. They don't get what they want. But what that does is that builds rapport and trust with that client. So next time something comes around, it also gives me the opportunity to say, this actually isn't my specialty. This is the kind of thing that I would be really good at. Mm. So in six months' time, a thing that sits squarely in the Jessamy camp, they're not going to hesitate to make that phone call because they know exactly what I do because we've gone through it really um, in a really detailed way and they know that I'm not going to fuck them around. Yeah. You know? Um, but that is particularly early on quite a scary thing to do. Yeah. And also comes with a certain level of 
privilege, I suppose, in yeah, a sense absolutely. that like you got to, particularly when you're starting out, you may take on more things with like shitty clients or work that like maybe is not the thing that you are the best at because you got to pay the rent. Yeah. So acknowledging that side of it too. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, that, that briefing process is so key to enjoying the work. <laughs> mm, absolutely. And I think it's also developing a checklist for yourself or a process for yourself in checking in with why you feel unconfident. Mm. Why is this particular thing setting off alarm bells in your brain that you can't, won't, shouldn't, fight or flight is setting in and you're like, shit, this is not good. Something's wrong. Something's Mm. actually wrong. And you go, "Mm, I I don't know if I dot, 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 dot. Is mm. I don't know if I can do the work. Can you do a test? Is there a reason why you're not sure that you can do the work? Is it something that you've never done before? No, I've done it before. Okay, well, why Why are you unsure? Because it's not exactly the same. Okay, can you do a test? Can you do something? Can you mm. go on literally like we're doing who wants to be a millionaire but it's like who wants to be a freelancer? Can I phone a friend and ask for a question? Yeah. <laughs> um, can I get 50-50? Like what is, what is the potential outcomes? And going through that process of for yourself of going what are the situations where I show up and I feel like I lack confidence? Is it when I am having a conversation with a client can it be done over email or can it be done over a Zoom or how can you hack the mainframe of the way mm. that you communicate? And sometimes that's putting in structures and systems to make sure that you got all the information. Sometimes it's making it so that you put a boundary in, like I don't quote on the phone. Mm. I don't quote in person because I will panic quote. Yeah. So it doesn't serve me. And in that situation, I need to go and collect more information, collect more data. I had a client literally yesterday, so day before, um, booked a call with me. So on my website, they can either submit a brief or book a call, ideally both, so that when they t- they turn up on the call, I've got as much information as possible. Yeah. And she was asking questions of like, well, what's a ballpark this and what's a ballpark that? And I'm like, look, I can give you a ballpark, but what if I smash it at the ballpark? Like that's not going to be helpful for you because you're now going to be having a different idea of what you're going to be up for and it's not going to be good for me because I'm just not going to have the information that I need. So I said to her, before I can even quote, I need you to send me the copy. I need you to send me the brief. I need you to send me the details. I need a list of deliverables, any expectations, any deadlines. These are the things I need to be able to accurately quote what you need. Yeah. And then what I did, and this is a a little bit of a tip for anyone who's listening, when you have those situations where you go back to them and say, this is what I can see, the two approaches I can do it are this or this, here are the things I foresee being potential hurdles, can we solve them before we even start, Mm. and here's the cost. Then after it, supply them with a potential future thing that you can help them with. So for this particular client, I'm doing some um, DL flyers for her and some collateral. I said, look, we can go on a more pared back approach, very professional, very corporate, or we can lean into a more illustrative look where we can have a bit more fun with it and it becomes part of your brand. I foresee that we don't have this element and this element and this element. Potentially also at the moment, we're not communicating really well on 
the the price point and whatever it is that we need to actually make it so that someone can buy what is actually on the DL. And then here's the price. And then um, once we're finished with this, I really would like to sit down and talk to you about your website because I can see some areas that I could really um, add benefit and value to it to make it so that you could make more sales. Don't have to think about it now, but definitely have got it on my radar and I'm thinking about it. So first let's start and let's knock this one off and make this happen so that we can handle the bigger problems. And so she's already like, oh, not only is she going to solve this problem, but she's told me the next problem that she's going to solve. And I've added zeros to my value. I've Mm. made it so that I could probably put most different numbers. I think I I charged uh, $1,500 for that job. Mm-hmm. Now that old me would have charged maybe 700, 800, but mm-hmm. I know that I can um, portray confidence in that space, not only about the problem at hand, but the future problem. And so it doesn't matter what dollar I put on it. It's risk reduction and confidence cultivation in that interaction that I've created not only future, uh, not only current job to do now, but future job to do in future when they're ready because they have the ticket price. Mm, You're clever. Thanks. (laughs) Something I've heard you talk about a bit recently is the idea of worth versus value, Mm -hmm. which I find infinitely interesting Mm -hmm. and I think is relevant to this chat. Could you talk to that a little for us? Sure. So worth versus value is a really interesting space to get into because generally when clients are wanting to find out the price of whatever we're doing, they'll say, oh, what's it worth? doesn't matter what it's worth. It's what it's valued at. So worth is important to the person or persons that are experiencing it. So if I'm experiencing the process of doing a logo, that's got nothing to do with what the client, the client's not going to feel that. Mm. The client's not going to feel what it's like to do 742 sketches and still not get there and then get angry at a busier point on a Friday night at 10.45, (laughs) Um, they're not going to feel that. And that's what it's worth to me. It's worth me either accepting the job and knowing how much I need to charge to be able to justify me doing the work but also justify me not hanging out with the dog and playing Pikmin, Mm -hmm. to justify me not taking on another job, to justify me not blocking out that time for someone else to come along. Worth versus, worth is more about what you're doing. Value is about what you're creating. So you're creating value for the client when you create them a logo, a piece of work, a piece of branding, a piece of any collateral that's actually going to make them money. Mm-hmm. we're in the business of creating visual elements to make our clients money. If it's not to make money, then why are they doing it in business? Businesses exist to make money, both the clients and yours. Mm. <laughs> it's really, it, it's a really mind shift that ends up happening. And the other thing that we get tripped up on is we chuck a self on the front of worth for no apparent reason. Your self-worth mm. has nothing to do with that equation because the, the client can't make money off your self-worth. If they can, that's a really weird interaction and I probably would suggest another industry. Yeah. But uh, your self-worth is not tied to what you create Yes, at all, especially when it's someone else. Like you're putting your dollar amount on that 
value that you're providing, but you're not putting a dollar amount on your self-worth. You are infinitely, infinitely more worth than you think. Yeah, that's so, and I think that that many creatives do. It does It does feel that way, mm-hmm. which I think probably plays into a lot of why it feels so icky to put a big number on that because it feels like you're telling someone, I, Jessamy, as a person, am worth this much money. But it, what it is, <laughs> it's saying working with me and what I create is worth this. Yeah. Totally. And you will your dollar amount that you put on your time, effort and energy will be more expensive than at least a billion people and less expensive than at least another billion people. Like you're you're not ever going to be the cheapest and you're not ever going to be the most expensive. Yeah. But you in your situation get to choose which one you want to be today. Yeah. I um I really love how you were speaking to these sort of structures and tick lists and stuff because you had a recent um blog article around imposter syndrome. I noticed you girls saw. Um And one of the sort of headlines from that was saying like, what, you know, why does this happen? Because creativity isn't quantifiable. Is that like, is it like that? Because essentially what we're trying to do is in a way kind of quantify it. I, (laughs) you know what I mean? I would actually disagree. Yeah. Okay. We're, we're, yeah, cool. we're quantifying the outcomes of our creativity. Mm, we're quantifying mm-hmm, out mm-hmm. the ability to make money from the skills that we have cultivated over time to then put that dollar amount on the outcomes yeah, of our creativity. And if we're trying to put a, a quantifiable element on our creativity, we are always going to undervalue ourselves. We are always going to undervalue it because we can do it. They can't. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. (laughs) Agreed. (laughs) Oh, good. We didn't come to fisticuffs. Thank goodness for that. Uh, It was just like that moment like, okay, that's all we have time for. We're leaving now. Get out. Get out. (laughs) Um, But on imposter syndrome, as we occasionally bring up on this podcast called the Imposter Syndrome Club, Um, obviously it's very relevant to this whole conversation around feeling confident in what you're doing, not feeling like, oh no, they're going to find out Mm -hmm. because, you know, there's no, like you don't go, I mean, you can go to uni and study graphic design, but it's not like being a surgeon where it's like, you really have to, you know, (laughs) like you can't self-teach brain surgery. Um, I don't know. YouTube's getting pretty good right now. (laughs) Um, so I think that, that kind of plays into the, the confidence things in some ways and it's less clear, like what is and isn't, you know, what constitutes experience or credibility, Mm -hmm. I suppose. Um, and the other classic one, of course, is, is comparison. What are, what are other people doing? Am I as good or, or, or better than that person? What are they charging? Should I be? So I'd love to hear you talk a little bit about kind of your thoughts around managing imposter syndrome as it relates to pricing as a creative. Yeah. So imposter syndrome is Izzy. I've named her and it's the only way that I can deal with it. (laughs) Izzy pops up at the times that I feel unconfident. She sits herself Mm. down right next to me and is like, you sure? Yeah. You sure? I don't know. You sure? And I just, I have to sit there and disprove her. 
to uh, accept that, you know, Imposter syndrome shows up when I'm outside my comfort zone and I've got the ankle monitor that lets me know I'm outside of my um, comfort zone buzzing and whizzing and freaking out, trying to get me back into comfort where I know everything is safe and understanding that that's actually a really good indicator that I'm trying something new, Mm. that I'm creating something that didn't exist and that I might be able to pursue as something new or interesting. Like, Shiny object syndrome is absolutely a big part of my life. But if I then sit there and go, whenever I try something new, it's going to be bad, then that's not that's not going to be helpful yeah. whatsoever. The comparison side of things as well is an interesting one. And I definitely have felt that process myself when I've gone, oh, well, what if someone else is charging more or less than me? And I'm like, well, they're not asking them. And if they are... Yeah that's okay. Yeah. Because if someone, if a client's coming to me and I've quoted six grand for the work and then they've got someone else, actually, no, this happened a couple of months ago. Excellent. Yay. Story time. Um, so a couple of months ago, I had a big national brand come to me to do a bunch of murals on the sides of shipping containers. Mm -hmm. I knew that it was going to take a lot of problem solving beforehand. So before I even quoted them, I actually asked them to send over a drum, which was the same material and the same paint that the base paint had been so that I could do all the testing. Mm. I then did research into it. And you're probably sitting there going, oh, wait, so you just spent all of this time um, and you didn't even get paid for it because, spoiler alert, they didn't go with me. But I would have been more concerned that I couldn't solve the problem or couldn't do the job Mm. if I didn't do the testing that I did. Yeah. And so when they came to me and we did the first quote and it was 30 grand. And then they came back and said, look, we've got we've got less than that. It's probably closer to 20 grand. And so then we reduced the deliverables mm-hmm. in line with the dollars and made it so that they, there were some parts that were simpler. There were some parts that we would do in vinyl instead of, of paint. So we were reducing my outputs so that it could justify a lower price. And then I think we got down to about 13K for this originally $30,000 job, which I was sitting there going, it's, it's just worth it. It's just worth it for me to do. Mm. It's a whole coming back to worth. Mm. And a week passed and I'm like, okay, so I need to book this time in. If we're doing this and it's my responsibility to keep on the client to be able to say yes or no. And they came back to me a week later saying, we've found someone that will do it for 6K less. And old me would have sat there and gone, I didn't even get the opportunity to to change that? Why didn't I get the opportunity to do, to be the one who charges 6K less? And it's with clarity and confidence that I can sit there and say, I wouldn't have done it for less. Yeah. I wouldn't have been interested in doing it for less because I had done the research and the information and the cultivation of the information that I needed to do to know that it was not worth seven grand. Yeah. It was not worth me putting myself in that position to say yes to a job that's not going to pay what it was worth to me to do. Yeah. 
That is such a hard and ongoing lesson. And I'm sure everyone will will relate to this where you you do something like that. You, You say yes to something that you kind of know you shouldn't have. You should have charged more. You should have um, given a longer lead time, whatever the thing is. You've agreed to something that's going to be incredibly uncomfortable for you for for one of many reasons. Mm -hmm. And when you are in that project, any you would give anything to get to out turn of it. back the clock and just say no. Yeah. For any amount of money, it's just not worth sitting there cursing your past self. Yeah. For having that feeling and going and getting scared and going, no, like what, what happens if I don't get this job? Wanna know what that's called? Resentment pricing. Yeah. Oh wow. Yeah. So Tell if me you more. are if you are pricing and you have resentment once you're in that, you are creating a eco space where you go, oh, I have resentment pricing. And if you mm. can name it when you're in it, you won't do it. Mm. Have you ever been in this situation where, say, you've had, you know, something's going to be a pain in the ass? I've already got the client in reason. my head ready. Yeah, okay. Go. You just have the feeling. So you go, you know what? I'm just going to really jack up this fee. That's going yeah. to be my like, my, what's the word? Like justification. Justification. Yeah. Perfect. Thank you. But then they say yes. And you still go, (laughs) fuck. (laughs) I, but, but I, I do think it's like, it's, it's funny, but I think it's useful in the sense that times that I have done that, and there haven't been many, to be honest. Mm. And I've noticed there was no joy in it for me. There was no like, Oh great! I'm going to you know get this at a this is a really nice chunky bit of cash. Mm-hmm. It's only ever been oh well. This has revealed to me that it is not worth really any amount of money to me to be to put myself through the stress of this for what whatever the reason is crazy deadline, mm-hmm. um, annoying client that's going to be very micromanaged or whatever the thing is like you know your spidey senses go off to a thing yeah. Um, is that something that you practice putting the like the nuisance? <laughs> I have a name for charge it. on top. Yeah. yeah, I have a name for it. It's called an uh, it's called a faff. I put a fuck around fee on, ah. on problematic <laughs> clients because I know that what I'm doing is justifying the crap that they're going to pull later, yeah. and trying to make it worth it. And yeah. you will find your faff fee will go up each time that you experience it. Yeah, and it will price those people out. You will get to a point where it's just like, you know what, it's 10K minimum for that kind of job. And they'll be like, oh, why is it so much? And I'm like, because I have done it before. I know the shit that's coming up. Yeah. And I can also see that you are someone that's going to entreat me as an employee, Mm. whereas ideally I'm a service provider. But in most situations like that, you got to step into that advisory role of the advisor mm. who knows and has expertise in that existing thing. And a lot of the time when they are the micromanager, the, the overthink, it's because they're scared. Yeah. It's because that you may have not communicated that you are a unrisky investment, but it also might be that they've ra- waved red flags more than a Macy's Day parade and you literally need to leave. Like you literally yeah. need to say no. And I feel like it's really, really important for any listener to hear the next words that I'm about to say. You are allowed to say no at any point. Mm. It doesn't mean that you can't. It, you've served the the quote. You can still turn around and say no. 
Mm. You're halfway through the job, you can still turn around and say no. Mm. You can still take a beat, take a moment and go, look, this, this has changed from what I originally thought. Your responsibility in that process is one, to have a good contract that covers you and, and you understand what happens when those termination situations happen. Mm. They do happen. They are not an indication of bad business. They're actually an indication of good business because you are cultivating what you are actually able to, willing to, wanting to do. Secondly is you would then need to know that you are creating an inconvenience, not guilting you, honey, but you are creating an inconvenience so you to maintain that relationship would find someone else that can fulfill it, whether it's a white label situation or whether it's just passing them on and giving them the, uh, giving that next person the information that they need to be able to do it well as well. What does a white label situation mean? A white label situation <laughs> is where you would hire someone else to be able to do the work that you then deliver. So it's basically it. like, say for instance, a client that I'm working with, I've got an illustrative piece that I'm like, actually, this is really in Jessamy's style. What if I reach out to Jessamy and say, hey, I've got this job that I'm working on. These are the, this is the information. Um, it's my client. So I'll be doing all of the information um, back and forth. You don't have to worry about dealing with them directly, but then I take what your rate is. I then put on a markup and then I send that to them. And the markup is to justify the relationship that we have, but then also to justify the work that I'm going to need to do to be able to work that relationship between the both of you. So it means that you can then bulk out what you can do for clients, make yourself more valuable and therefore be able to charge the larger dollars because you are solving a larger problem. Got it. You're so clever. Why are you so pretty and clever? Um, this is a slight sidestep, but I've been wanting, I mentioned this briefly when I saw you at Creative Mornings last week, and this is a topic that I'm quite passionate about mm. and I'm very interested to hear your opinions on it because I'm pretty sure that they will align with mine. It's about cheese, right? It is about cheese. <laughs> it's so good, right? I come and bear it. Um, <laughs> no, it's about. Oh, Brehay. Oh, stop it. Um, okay, enough cheese puns. I didn't think I would ever say that in my life. But um, <laughs> so when I when I bumped into you, and the reason why I brought this up, not only because it's been a sort of a, a personal passion thing, I think for me over years, a conversation had just happened online. So there's a um, a graphic facilitation Facebook group that's very active. Has a um, yeah, a very active global membership. And this is a conversation that has come up there many times, which is around pro bono work. Mm-hmm. And I think that there is a quite damaging and very reductive view on pro bono work where it's gotten to the stage where if anyone even, you know, puts out a, hey, like there's this company, they don't have budget, you know, no one's asking anyone to do work, Right but it has become such a like reductive conversation that it's just like hard no, how dare you even ask. Mm. Now, there is still a lot of work that needs to be done in this area, but if I think of the pro bono opportunities and relationships that I have had over time, one of them being with Creative Mornings. So I did the graphic recording for Creative Mornings for maybe six years and I am now host of that chapter. Mm -hmm. TEDx Melbourne, about a decade I've worked with them. I love working with these people. There is no money involved. There is absolutely an exchange of value. And I think this is where 
the conversation needs to be more nuanced because you also might choose to do it because it's a it's a passion. You just care about a certain issue so you want to support it. But there are so many more useful questions that can be asked rather than just saying, hard no, how dare you? Mm-hmm. Discuss. <laughs> I have Discuss more thoughts, but, myself. Um, but I will, I'll, th- I'll throw the mic to you before I go on my monologue so, about yeah, it. Yeah. <laughs> you know, years to come, there'll be like a, a acting student who's like, I'm doing the monologue of Jessamy. Um, <laughs> on pro bono. <laughs> and scene. <laughs> yeah. So when it comes to pro bono, we need to remember that, uh, full-on businesses are not built on solely pro bono work, but a pro bono or charitable element of your business is actually quite healthy in small doses. Yes. So you need to be able to communicate the value in that. And a lot of the time when it is a pro bono situation, I actually highly recommend using a thing called a memorandum of understanding or an Mm -hmm. MOU. Um, And so having a in place means that you can communicate what the value is that you are actually exchanging and then they can understand what they're getting and potentially come to the party. We don't put that responsibility on them, but we're making sure that we actually still communicate what our value is because if we're doing something for free, it's a very very different situation to doing something for exchange of value. Yes. Um, and that's where I think we hold back on a lot of the conversations that we don't have. You know, I will say right now I am the breakfast partner for Creative Mornings and yeah, that to me is like a really important thing for me and it's important for my business to have grown to a position where I'm able to do that. And that was one thing that I was very surprised with with a lot of the response when I I spoke to a couple of people saying, oh, I'm the Creative Mornings Breakfast sponsor. And it was uh, met with shock of like, oh, I'm surprised that you're able to do that. Mm. And I've built a business around that idea of doing that. But part of that is also recognising that I'm going to turn up at seven o'clock and I'm going to help set up chairs and I'm going to be around to talk to other people. And I'm going to probably look for ways to connect with other people and still be part of the team, but also be the sponsor. And there was actually something that you did uh, last week that kind of was just a bit of like a, oh, this is where you are, Jazz. You came up to me afterwards and you said, are you happy? Yeah. Oh, that's nice of me. Good good for you, past (laughs) Jessamy. And you came up to me and said, are you happy? And I went, yes, of course. But it was me kind of sitting there going, oh, it's a different dynamic than just being part of a volunteer situation because there is the sponsorship side of things. Yeah. But to me, this is about creating and cultivating relationships both in the team of the people that arrive and that, you know, it extends my reach to a group of people that I know need what I serve. Yeah. It's reciprocal value and it's really that's a really important part of it and the reason of that being so important is because of the way my dad brought me up so i am a daughter of small business my dad ran, uh, runs butcher shops my mum was a mobile hairdresser when i was younger but my dad always had the idea of you need to be big enough to serve someone but small enough to know them you need to do enough and be enough and be big enough to be able to facilitate everything that they want 
but you need to be small enough to know that their kid's birthday is coming up or you, or you need to be small enough to know that they're gluten free, that that they would be really benefit. They would really, last time that they came to the counter, they wanted a lamb roast and it was two kilos. And you know that that's an hour per kilo plus half an hour. So you can help them be able to feed their family, be able to be sharing that moment. And that doesn't mean doing things at a discount. That doesn't mean giving away your services. It just means that you need to be able to create those connections and those relationships. And so dad, um, over the course of, gosh, 27 years, maybe more, um, he sponsored so many different sporting um, organisations, groups, like, and it was really important that you be big enough to throw the hand back when you can. Yeah. You you share with the people that can help you find your value as well mm. because it's so cool being in the creative mornings space. Like it took me one creative mornings to become a sponsor. Like, you know, you must be doing something yeah, right. Yeah, we, we reel them in good. Yeah, babe. And so, <laughs> you know, I'm sitting there and I'm like, no, nah, I have to be part of this. So it's it's definitely a space where I'm able to then go, because I'm part of the team, people might be able to then have conversations with me and I'll be yes. able to show them how I can help them, that I can start these conversations and be put in an eco space where I activate my own genius, where I activate my own ability to show up, to see people, to be the person that I needed when I was starting out in freelance. Yeah. I l- and I think you've hit on a few things that are super important, be it, you know, sponsorship or pro bono work. It's sort of kind of similar sort of thing really, isn't it? But one is absolutely com- communicating value, mm-hmm. finding the right thing that genuinely feels reciprocal. Mm-hmm. And I think that's what's been so awesome about this relationship between Creative Mornings and yourself and Shane from Bella Fonte Coffee. So essentially you, you are paying his bill every month. That's kind of I how am, it works. I, I didn't know that part of my business was definitely going to be make, uh, to paying for coffee and bagels, but it tracks, babe. It works. It tracks. But this is, you know, with the, the food metaphor and that like these, it could not be a more perfect audience for you. Also our audience are genuinely getting something of your out of your involvement. Mm-hmm. They are getting genuine value. I've had five people since Friday all send me DMs saying I took this into my next time that I quoted. Um, For those who are playing at home, it was don't quote for how fast you can do the work, quote for how long you need to do your best work. And this really resonated with so many people and that's just the first taster. That's just the first thing to get them to start thinking differently because that's that mindset shift that then will actually shift you into not being the starving artist but being the hungry creative. Yeah. Oh, hungry creative. I love it. (laughs) But, yeah, it's one of like when it everything works, there's no ick. There's no weird feeling around money. Like, yeah, there is money involved in this particular situation Mm. but there is because the benefit goes in all directions it's just, it just clicks. So I think finding those right relationships mm. with the right people is so important. But then also, and it's something I've spoken about with pro bono work as well, when cons- like questions to ask yourself when considering whether to take it on or take on a sponsorship mm-hmm. is, am I going to commit to doing what I need to do to make the most out of this relationship? Yeah. Jazz is very committed. <laughs> 
but, but that's there why is... you got a text last night being like, I've ordered coasters. And you're like, of course you've ordered I coasters. Love it. I love <laughs> it. But there is some, you know, in, in order when you're talking about that, you know, reciprocal value and stuff, you do also need to put some effort in to make mm. sure that that happens. And I think that's something I've have and haven't done in the past with um with sort of pro bono relationships that I've been in and it's like oh yeah like I also have to step up and 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 make sure if I'm going to make this investment that I get the that I get what I expect out of it you know some of that responsibility sits on me too yeah absolutely because otherwise we're sitting there going and, and falling back into that resentment pricing because like yeah. I'm not getting paid shit for this yeah so then you do a bad job and then they get the experience and then it just doesn't feed or fuel you both passion wise and paid wise and so then we're sitting in this position where we're like I wish this was different well you have the opportunity to make a difference. So mm. it's up to you to make those changes, to make those alterations yes. in as, as soon as you can, as soon as possible. There's also definitely space for when a client gets quoted, say, 10K, and they're like, oh, we've only got six, and you then reduce the deliverables, but then you can say to them, look, the lowest I can get it down to is eight. So there's about a $2,000 deficit but I've noticed that you have a really good PR arm of your business. Can we get that working for us? Or can we, can mm. you have a photographer on staff? Can they do some photos or some video for me? If you can allocate that almost barter deficit of where they should be paying, where they can pay to build up that value and thinking about, you know, that value can then build the next job and the next job and the next job and give you something that you wouldn't have had access to before. Yeah. You know, everything is currency. You just need to get creative with it. I love that. And that's really taking a, a problem-solving lens because collaborating with your clients in that way is how the best stuff is always going to happen. Like totally. it's not a... Um, they're your partners and your buddies. Like you're not <laughs> in war with your clients. And I think that it can feel like that to, mm. to some people sometimes. But, yeah, like working together to solve the problem mm -hmm. is, what you're, is what you're doing and whether that involves, yeah, creative new ways to look at it to get to solving the problem within their budget. Great. And the funny thing is when you work together, you respect each other more. Yeah. Because so often when we've got that uneven relationship with our clients where we are working for our clients and our clients are hiring us and allowing us to be working for them, it's off balance. Mm. We're never above, we're never below, we are yeah. equal. And if we can continue to create that equality in the way that we communicate, in the way that we charge, in the way that we show up for both ourselves and other freelancers and our clients as well, it's going to be a much more valuable relationship both now and in the future. Yeah. I can't really think of a better way to round out the conversation <laughs> than that. You are so eloquent, my goodness. Um, but before we do, you've got a whole bunch of exciting shit going on. Tell us all about it. Where can people find you? You've got a membership thing that sounds incredible going on. Tell us about all of your things. Well, it's pretty damn exciting. So the master, so basically, okay, I'm going to start that sentence again because I got too excited. <laughs> like you hyped me. You're like, I'm like yes, Sorry. yes, do, do, do. Okay. So um, as, as part of the Creative Business Kitchen, I have decided to fling open my knowledge pantry and form 
the freelancer's pantry. So this is my hand-picked ingredients, tools, and things that I use in my business to help you find your pathway to profit and freelance success in yours. It is lovingly created and well-stocked for ambitious creatives who actually want to make more than just a living, but actually make a life out of their freelance career. Um, So if you head to, and I'm actually going to, you know, pop it on its own landing page for the imposter uh, listeners. So if you head to creativebusinesskitchen.com slash imposter, not only will you be able to access the pantry, but you'll also be able to see any of the previous masterclasses, which cover so many different topics and are part of the freelancer's pantry if you sign up. But you can also grab my free pricing calculator that actually takes you back to step one and helps you work out the dollar amount that you need to be putting on your time to create more money in your business, whether that be uh, altering your expenses, whether it be heightening the way that you show up with a salary, maybe changing the way of the hours that you need to be putting into your business. That way, then it will take all of those. It's like a handy dandy calculator. And I really, really love it. It's a very nerdy moment that I sat there and I custom coded it into my website. Love it. And so it takes you through that process of starting with your salary, adding all of your expenses for both living and work, taking the amount of hours that you have in the day to actually make billable work, gives you a number that you need to charge, but then gives you the next steps to realize that swapping time for money isn't all it's cracked up to be. And there are smarter, more creative ways to be able to put a dollar amount or an access point on your creative genius. Ah, fucking amazing. (laughs) Um, Jazz's website is incredible. Um, Whether you sign up to the, what's it called again? Creative Pantry? Freelancer Pantry? I'm sorry. You did it. Freelancer's Pantry. Freelancer Pantry. Um, Or not. I mean, I think for the value that you get, it's probably pretty pretty worth it. But even just, you will see going to Jazz's website, the amount of resources, blog posts, the the pricing calculator, all of this stuff that is there for free, as well as um, follow her on the gram at your pricing queen, because there is so much useful shit on there. So um, yeah, I'm, I'm hyping you up because I actually can't <laughs> believe the amount of incredible content that you put out for free. Um, because a lot of people, you know, sit there and go, oh, it's too expensive to charge more. Well, it's more expensive to charge cheap. Let me help yeah. you with the first step. Yeah. Well, thank you on behalf of all creatives that have had <laughs> weird, icky shit around money. Yeah, babe. We're, we're, we're trying. And, um, and we will prevail. Yeah. Fuck yeah. Jazz, thank you so much. You've been an absolute joy. I could keep talking to you forever. Um, Looking forward to seeing what you cook up for us next. Yes. Thank you so much and peace out, everyone. Peace out. Thank you for listening to the Imposter Syndrome Club. Please follow us wherever you find your podcasts. And if you're feeling extra kind, rates and review, or if you got any insights or value from this, share with a friend. You can also find us on Instagram at ImpostorPod or online at ImpostorSyndromeClub.com. 